Okay, welcome back to Presidential Podcast. This is Philip. And this is Robert. And we're here talking about our part two of Calvin Coolidge. We pretty much finished off our last episode. Coolidge had been surprisingly nominated as the vice president in the Republican convention. And so we're moving into the 1920 election to begin where Warren G. Harding is running. Do you want to begin there? Sure. So... Um, the, the Cox, uh, ticket of, um, among the Democrats was a near mirror image of the, uh, Harding Coolidge ticket with Cox being the governor of Ohio, uh, Warren G. Harding being the United States Senator of Ohio, both of them small town backgrounds, both of them uh, notable for religious observance, if not necessarily piety. Both of them noted for uh, rather uh, lackluster, I don't want to say lackluster, rather colorless public lives. I mean, both of them seem to stand for American normalcy. And... They stood for American normalcy to such a degree that Warren G. Harding actually adopted it as his campaign slogan, saying that the Republican campaign in 1920 uh, was a return to normalcy. Now, they looked at normalcy as no war, we're out of World War I, as a rather uh, mundane rather business-oriented, rather uh, limited prosperous. government, certainly prosperous. You know, like, let's, let's keep people working. Let's, let's keep taxes low. Uh, during the war, is Wilson. It the way, is it the way we think of the 90s? I'm not sure how you think of the 90s. Okay. So um, Wilson had had uh, a fiscal conservative, had had to raise taxes to finance the war. There were um, hundreds of millions of dollars, which at the time was an enormous sum, uh, out in war bonds, uh, which we where we had borrowed money to finance the war. There was some trepidation about repaying the war bonds. <coughs> so, uh, uh, Warren G. Harding was in favor of extreme frugality in government. Uh, low government uh, impact on life. Uh, he wasn't a an isolationist, but he and and, and Coolidge as well both felt the uh, League of Nations brought us into something which we didn't want to be involved in. We didn't want to be involved in a permanent uh, uh, council of countries governing the world. And and remember, the League of Nations was not just about Europe. Uh, Countries like Syria, uh, all of Palestine, including Jordan, the what, what might become the Palestinian uh, state, Israel, uh, were part of the League of Nations mandates. Uh, League of Nations uh, had to do with the disposal of German territory in Africa, German islands in the Pacific, uh, Turkey, the Ottoman Empire was broken up. So, again, areas like Iraq, Syria, Palestine, uh, which had 
formerly been part of the Ottoman Empire were mandated to European powers. So the, the, the League of Nations definitely had uh, kind of a, a sheriff of the what we might consider the third world effect. So uh, Coolidge and Harding both wanted to stay out of that. Cox and, and his running mate, I believe Dawes, wanted to stay out of that. What they did believe in was the limitation of armaments. You know, they didn't want to have a big navy. So they uh, got a, a naval limitation treaty to limit the British and the American navies to their uh, current levels, to limit the Japanese navy to three-fifths of the displacement tonnage of the British and American navies, uh, the French navy to the same level, I believe the Italian navy to the same level, so basically the allies in uh the First World War were given the first and second tier of naval power. And then other countries like Germany and Russia got lower uh, lower levels of na- naval power. And then countries like Germany Mexico. No, Germany no longer had access to the, <coughs> to the Baltic. <coughs> yeah, they did. Okay. Through yeah, they Poland? did. Uh, well, through modern day Poland? Through uh, Prussia. Through what would be modern day okay. Poland. Okay. Uh, other countries like Mexico, Colombia, Brazil, so on like that, independent uh, republics in the Americas, were limited to, to coastal forces to maintain coastal security. Was, was Europe, I mean, was America at this era considering itself a first world power? We were, we were considered to be the peer of, of, of Great Britain, which was the dominant premier, power. Premier power. Right. So we were considered to be their peer. Right. And Germany was considered to be... Germany was to stay unarmed. They were, but they, as far they, as advancement and civilization? As far as advancement and civilization, they were considered a major threat because they were considered to be as powerful as Britain, what? possibly as powerful as Britain and France, that it would take a coalition of the United States, Britain, France, to defeat Germany. And so Germany was to be completely disarmed. The army was to be limited to 100,000 men. Did the West... The Navy to be... Uh, Coastal defense. Did the West at this time already begin to feel the um, end of imperialism coming on, or they hadn't yet reached that point? So Germany was stripped of any non-European, trans-European imperial possessions. France continued to have a massive, gigantic empire in Africa, they had Southeast Asia, Indochina. They still had um, Suriname and some islands in the Caribbean. The British Empire still had India, Australia, South Africa, and Canada were dominions. Um, East Africa, West Africa, North Africa, they were British colonies of, of large extent, Nigeria, uh, Tanganyika, Kenya, Egypt. Uh, well, that's South Africa, but Rhodesia, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> um, Portugal had enormous African possessions. Spain continued to have some possessions in Africa. So uh, the Europeans had actually had uh, army uh, soldiers drawn from the imperial areas fighting in Europe and fighting in other imperial areas. The, the British were using 
East Africans to fight West Africans, West Africans to fight East Africans, setting the different tribes of East Africa against each other, using Indian, East Indian troops everywhere. So the European powers at this point still saw themselves as the, the masters of the world. And and Harding sees maintaining that order minus the these almost civilization ending World War One. He sees that as no returning to normals. I think his idea Is it was bringing back Elizabethan era uh, norms. No, I think his idea was more domestic oriented. Uh-huh. That uh, you know, you I think you you can see very clearly the beginnings of modern day republicanism: low taxes, limited government. Did it have anything to do? Did he have a position on industrialism? Not to the extent like, say, McKinley had, you know, where he supported tariffs and he supported the investment in certain industries. I mean, certainly there was nothing like that with, with Harding. Okay, so Harding gets elected. First first guy to get elected under with the women's full vote. Right. Who put in the women's full vote? Coolidge? I mean, uh, Wilson? Um, I believe the amendment, the amendment uh, was actually ratified in 1920. So the 1920 election was the first one. I I, I wouldn't give Wilson the credit for it. Was I don't Wilson think an oppo- opponent. Of I don't think he supported it, but I don't think he was an opponent of it. I and think this is a- I think it was that 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 inter interregnum when Wilson was essentially crippled, sitting there. Oh, he was crippled when he was in in stroke. that stroke period. That uh, he didn't really assert much leadership. I think that the women's movement was able to use that period where there was no effective Republican leadership and no Democratic leadership. So essentially the leadership was silent and they were able to pass the, the amendment that and this gave was women the, the right first wave of feminism in this country? Uh, I'm not I'm not I'm not an expert on feminist history. I, I don't even think this is considered a wave of feminism because, you know, I've I've, I've read that Hillary Clinton is a first wave feminist. She's like Oh, she's second wave? All right, then you'll, I'll have to uh, yield to your greater knowledge on this so you can address well, that. Well, these people are coming from... No, no. In this era, the suffrage movement, they're, they're suffragettes, right? They're yeah. coming from Seneca Falls? Where's their base? No, no. I mean, this is not Seneca Falls. Seneca Falls was in 1848. Okay. We're in 1920. I mean, we're... You so know. they're nationwide? So this is... this is. I mean, the, the, the hotbed probably would still be the... Uh, urban areas of the Midwest, uh, places like Rochester, New York, Cleveland, Ohio, Erie, Milwaukee. Well, Erie's, yeah, Erie, I mean, it's not a major city, but, you know. The, 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 Gary? Gary would have, would have been one of them, but again, St. it's Louis? a secondary city. But the, 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 the St. Louis, the primary and secondary cities. How about Dallas? In the northeastern quadrant. You know, there definitely is a, a current for um, what I'm going to call women's rights in the South, but I don't think it has the dominance and the, the normality that it has in the North and, the, and in the Northeast. In the West, it was very well developed. You know, we remember the first woman in the House of Representatives and represented Wyoming, and it was from Wyoming because they had such a small population, they had to let women vote to get enough population to go from territory to statehood status. Okay. And had the temperance movement um, <coughs> taken foothold culturally? 
by one to the extent to thing. the extent that it ever took a life, it was it was probably uh, a <coughs> probably something Cox supported as much as as um, Harding, because I mean this is again this is small town northern America. Although the southerners, the white southerners, for sure. I'm not so sure about the African-American Southerners, but definitely small-town Americans, Methodists, Baptists, Southern certainly, Baptists. well, Baptists of all denominations, certainly supported temperance. And, and Coolidge was behind temperance, but maybe not Harding. Harding would have been publicly behind it, although he for sure would have walked around with a hip flask of uh, some kind of uh, fermented Harding spirits. knew he was going to win. The Republicans knew they were going to win. 20, right? right. So Harding wins a landslide. Right, 60% or something. 60%. Yeah. He wins everything but the U.S. South. Yeah, the, 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 the Democratic solid South. Okay. And Back he, then, Democratic. He goes into office with a mandate. That's that's a hard question. I mean, I you know, if, if, you, if I were on TV, you would have seen me giving a fish face on that one. You know, like the goldfish in the bowl with the mouth opening and closing. I mean, yeah, Harding wins a massive popular majority. Yeah. He went what four ten or something to one ten or something yeah. with the with the electoral college. You know, four to one, almost in the electoral college. But a mandate, you know, what what what's he stand for? You know, oh, return to normalcy. I mean, what's normalcy? You know, is it the speakeasy or is it the axe wielding temperance? Uh, Bust, bar busting temperance woman. I mean, Does, what does normalcy mean? What's Coolidge's relationship to Harding like? Cool. Okay. Does cool. he respect Harding? Coolidge respect yeah. Harding? Oh, what a funny question. Um, I would say no. So Coolidge is much more austere than Harding, less a man of the world than Harding. What is his? What is his? What does he? Does he recognize Harding's strengths? Well, I don't think Harding recognized Harding's strength. I mean, there's a story that may be apocryphal. It may be true. I tend to think of it as true. There's a story of Harding in the White House about halfway through his term. He only served three years. He was inaugurated in March 1921, died in August of 1923. Uh, so this, this happened like about mid-1922, about halfway through his term. Harding, baffled by the complexity of the office, completely consternated by the news of his major betrayals by close friends and colleagues who were grafting, skimming the, the, the federal treasury to within a half inch of his life, going somewhere there's got to be somebody who wrote a book explaining how to do this job. I just got to find that book and that guy and he could tell me what I got to do next. So Harding was in no way temperamentally, intellectually, spiritually, morally, politically fit for the office. I mean, he was a, a pure compromise candidate. Nobody liked him. Nobody disliked him. So that's why he got it. When he got in there, I mean, Harding's big, uh, Harding's big talent in life is what they call spading. Just like you're sitting in a poker, in a poker game. And uh, people are, are, are dealing and turning up cards in whatever varieties of poker where they do that. And you bet on what's going to be the next card that comes up. You know, is it going to be a two of clubs, uh -huh. three of diamonds? 
And Harding apparently had a real knack for that. I mean, that's his main talent in life. Predicting what's going to come next? No, spading, playing cards like that. Okay. So Coolidge is a more competent politician than, not only politician, but competent um, governor than um, Harding. So, well, Harding was a senator. I mean, um, but once they're in the executive, I office. mean, yeah, Harding was. A so, so there's 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 two Republican presidents we can think of as kind of the epitomes of the great engineer or the technocratic president, and 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 I would I would say uh, certainly um, uh, Herbert Hoover, who was known as the great engineer, but he's known as a great capitalist, the great engineer. I mean, he had an engineering background. He got rich on it. Okay. Uh, he was a very astute economic prognosticator, and he was so astute, he would make investments based on his economic prognostications. He became very wealthy. He's like a, um, he's like <coughs> a uh, the guy from Omaha? Yes. Uh, Warren Buffett right. type? Right. Not that rich. And he was also a working engineer. I mean, he, he, he was a civil engineer. He did projects in Mexico, China, all over the place. Coolidge represents that same kind of cerebral, cool, fact-oriented approach to government and politics, except that Coolidge is thinking in terms of the law and morality. So he's like, he's like Gore on the conservative side. We, we, could, compare him, we could compare those two, yeah. Is he a supportive vice president? Is there anything to speak of as so, vice presidency? Uh, Were they considered a good team? Was the country the, happy the, with the, them? The, 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 the vice presidency party? back then was nothing. Okay. All right. Uh, Although vice presidents had taken over. Teddy had taken over when he was vice president. Yeah, and look at how shocked he was. I mean, he almost got killed taking over. Okay. Um, they had no substantive role. The, it, in fact... Uh, Coolidge was the first president to attend cabinet meetings. Does it I mean, matter? 1920, you know, 18, 1789, 1920. And, and, and that's a good question. Did it matter? I mean, did he say anything? It's silent cow. He sits there. Right. You know? So uh, I, I, I think Coolidge was astute enough to recognize, I just got to get through these two terms with this guy. Then I can retire. And hopefully nothing's ever going to happen that's going to thrust me into that. And I think he realized very early on this presidency is a disaster. The more I support him, the more his dirt sticks to me. And Coolidge tended to be a rather aloof, quiet figure anyway. He went to a lot of ceremonial events, stayed away from Washington, uh, was very quiet, you know, gaveled the Senate into order, was very quiet during any debates. He just pretty much kept himself distant from the president and the presidency. I mean, it was, it would have been a disaster for him to get involved with him. Okay. So let's move up. August 1923, Harding is on the West Coast doing a, a tour, speaking tour, I imagine, and he dies suddenly in San Francisco. So he had a, some kind of a, of a maid or, House house chamber lady or, or something like that who apparently uh, was uh, 
servicing his uh, sexual. Uh, so you're a mistress. No, uh, a mistress would infer that's that she's somewhat equal, okay, and that she has some kind of status. So it's like Schwarzenegger's name. I don't know about that. Schwarzenegger had a Mexican name when he was governor of California that he, he had a child with. All right. Well, they didn't have a child. Okay. I mean, uh, and there are stories that he was like there was some little closet under the stairs leading up to the you know I mean, where they were meeting and. Carrying this was on in the White House. In the White House, uh, Florence Henderson, who was a formidable woman, who probably was the brains in the Harding marriage and probably the backbone in the Harding presidency, certainly the person who got Warren G. Harding into his elevated positions. Uh, so Harding is not exactly no family moral backbone. No, there's there's a lot of uh, historical. Uh, speculation as to whether Florence poisoned him. Really? And killed him. Seriously? Yeah. On on that trip. Wow, you know, that's unbelievable. Out of out of uh, Was he in good health otherwise? Well we don't know. Okay. I mean he looked like he know? looked healthy. Okay. He was handsome. He was handsome, he was tall, he was broad shouldered, you know, uh, somebody How old was he? One of one of his sixties? Uh, I believe early sixties. One of his uh, Democratic opponents said that he was so tall and broad-shouldered he must have Negro blood. Okay. And, you know, they that were... That was a racist Democratic call. Uh, of course. And there were, there were other stories about his sexual preferences college, and yeah. his sexual attributes that went along those lines okay. as well. So, uh, you know, whatever the was truth of that is... Was growing up? Yeah, he was a big golfer and he was a runner and he was, you know, football player, all this... I believe he played tennis as well, you know, so. Uh, but, you know, Florence was very, very, very chagrined, disturbed, angry. And uh, it's, it's not to say that he probably wasn't already following this path of marital infidelity. It was just that, uh, I guess, when they got to the White House, it came into the house. And Florence wasn't going to stand for that, so. Uh, whether whether she killed him, in fact, by poisoning him, as there are some historians whom I can't think of right now, but I've seen the articles, or whether she just decided, I'm going to let him work this out on his own, knowing that he would fail, uh, pretty much he was dead politically if he hadn't been dead physically, which meant Coolidge took it over clean. All right, so that, that would be the big effect, I think, of, of Harding's uh, death. The Coolidge arose to the White House on the death of the president, so he came in clean. What were, what were his numbers? <laughs> we don't have them, approval rating-wise. Uh, we didn't start getting those sorts of things until the Gallup polling in the late 1940s. Mm -hmm. So we don't know. So, this is, remember, this is mid-20s. Right, so early 20s. Even. Early 20s. 23. Yeah. So... Coolidge is back home in um, Vermont. He was yeah, where it's something Notch, Dixon Notch, Dixon Notch. No Vermont. I mean, Father he was. Home. He well, was was he at his dad's house? He might he might well have been at his boyhood home. Okay, and he gets he gets some, no electricity, no telephone. So he gets a message coming saying that uh, the president is dead, and he has to swim off his tub. Story. Yeah, so it. thank God it was summer. You know, I mean, if it had been winter and there had been like nine feet of snow on the ground, like there can be up there, I mean, it might have been three weeks before anybody got to right. them, you know. Um, 
So the story goes, uh, the messenger came and uh, woke everybody up. Uh, Coolidge was sleeping, apparently, in the buff. Comes down, takes the message. You know, and People, I guess, were more informal back then. And uh, went back upstairs, got dressed, uh, summoned his father. The father came into the, into the parlor, sitting room, living room. Back then they had parlors, you know, and, you know, we can imagine this room. Maybe there's an upright piano, fireplace, you know, some chairs with, like, doilies on them, uh, some kind of, of uh, stand or table with some oil lamps on it, you know. Uh, so Dad comes in. Uh, son says, well, guess what, Dad? You know, you got to swear me in as president. Dad's like, you know, like, hell, you know talking about you know i told you not to be overly ambitious and uh you know that he cal would have to say no dad it's true you know here's the messenger and the father would have to read the message you know and go through whatever uh process he went through to verify it because again you know this is calvin coolidge senior you know uh calvinist to the heart you know named after calvin named his kid after calvin you know so he's gonna you know Dot all the I's, sure. cross all the T's, and so when he was satisfied, the fact that the now president... his father was a no Republican and justice of the peace, yes. so he was civic-minded. Very, very minor offices, which, you know, uh, notary public, you come in, you know, they have that... that you were, you did that, right? Sure, yeah, so CO. you could probably tell a little bit about that. Well, you have to uh, identify the person that you're sign the document, you have to provide a seal, you have to date it, you're, you're um, licensed by the county government, I believe. And, I mean, that's what you do. You, you verify people's, um, either their judicial documents, like an affidavit, which is a sworn statement, or um, something of that, of that nature. And, you know, you basically provide the uh, legal backing that the person who's representing themselves is that person and they're they're making a legal declaration is there a fee two dollar fee right now two dollar fee all right for so, every signature so uh, a nominal fee um and then justice is a piece i mean we tend to think of them now uh when we get tickets in small towns and they haul you before the justice of peace you know he's uh i always think it was some guy in a gas station although there's no gas stations anymore so he'd probably be in town hall you go before him, the officer who gave you the ticket says, well, I caught him speeding, doing 95 miles an hour in a 30-mile zone. And the justice piece looks at you and says, how do you plead? And you say, I plead not guilty. And he says, guilty. You know, the police officer's testimony is true. Right. They find him $930. Well, $130. And then he pockets about 20% of it. So, so okay. uh, even though we can say... Uh, Coolidge Sr. was a very upright and uh, righteous man, there's still a certain amount of, of commerce going on with well, it the is administration of justice. It is New yes, England. and it is New England. Okay. So Coolidge Jr. takes over um, the presidency. What What is his... Is he in, is he like LBJ in in like that? You know, we always know the photo of LBJ when he takes over for um, JFK. Is he in is he in like a, a state of catatonic shock? All is right. He, so what's so, his psychological state going? So in? we don't know because 
you know, Dixon Notch, wherever it was, Vermont, uh, 1923. You know, they probably maybe had a camera in town that could have taken a picture like that. It would have had to have been posed. So there's no spontaneous shots. Uh, he was not a diarist. So we don't have him... Unlike John uh, we don't Right. We don't have him writing, you know, diary, you know, blah, 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 blah. Uh, the father was as quiet as he is. The whole family right. were basically basically passed through the earth without leaving any, any documents right. or any records. So we don't know. I mean, we just have to assume... Uh, he's probably afraid. I got to go to Washington. I got to call the cabinet together. I got to figure out who's going to stay in the government. I got to figure out how to deal with the scandal and whatever other matters there are. I got to, I got to start dealing with them. And he probably took it very much like anybody would take, you know, I, I got the job now. I got to go down and do it. But that's kind of the type of solid individual he is that he's just going to go. He's just going to wake up the next day assume his responsibility and go about executing the task in front of him. Pretty much. Okay. With, with the train ride down, you know, you can imagine that every every stop on the train he was met by well-wishers, but he would have also been met by people with messages, uh, requests. Do you think that he had an ambition for power and, and uh, authority? Well, he was a governor. He was a vice president. He clearly is an ambitious man. But um, I think he was surprised that the mantle uh, was conferred upon him. Do you think if he knew about, and this is all speculation, if he knew about some of the problems between Harding and Henderson, his wife, do you think that he... Florence. Florence Henderson. Do you think that he <coughs> would have imagined that that could be a point of that point, an inflection point for the presidency? No, no. I mean, he is so discreet. Uh, The social mores of that time were so against anybody getting involved that deeply in somebody's marriage, you know. I mean, unless somebody caught her actually spooning in the poison, I mean, nobody would have questioned it. Okay. So Coolidge takes over. He has about a year... And about a year left, basically, before the next election cycle, right? Right. And then, is there? And then he goes in. He has an election, and then he basically runs one term. So, what are the highlights? What are the important salient points of his? Well, the first, the first thing was that uh, the Teapot Dome scandal had erupted during Harding's term. Explain to the listeners. What so, uh, basically, there's a geological structure in Wyoming uh, called the Teapot Dome. It contains a lot of oil. You know, several, it's a, a, a dome, a, a limestone dome, several hundred miles wide. Uh, I don't know how deep down it goes, but a lot of oil. And it was owned by the government. It's on federal land. And the uh, particular buddies, card partners, of uh, President Harding had been essentially 
giving out contracts to exploit it to favored people for uh, financial compensation. To, to exploit the um, oil well? So, in, in other words, for the right to drill oil on federal land, oil. you were paying. And the money wasn't going back to the, to the federal treasury. It was going to these individuals' pockets. Okay. So there was preferential treatment. There was bribery. There was, you know, there's a whole lot of scandal and uh, bad stuff going on. You know, and, and for the return to normalcy president, for the president who's talking about how uh, all vice stems from alcoholism, you know, and how he's a... a, a Which he said publicly? Yeah, how he's a, a Christian, doesn't do those sorts of things. He's uh, a hypocrite. Right. Well, beyond being a hypocrite, I mean, he's actively abetting the uh, illegal exploitation of federal lands and, and, and bribery. So, uh, and, and, you know, events like that are the sort of thing that bring down governments. You know, I mean, we could have ended up with, with a major constitutional crisis if uh, Harding hadn't died. As it was, Coolidge was able to come in. He had no attachment to those people. He was able to... Uh, was, Hen- was his wife, Florence Henderson, more upset about that, about the personal uh, betrayal? I'm going to go with the personal betrayal, although if, 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 you know, I can't imagine her not knowing about it, and I can't imagine her not somehow being implicated, at least to the extent that when they left Washington, there would be some kind of a fund set up for them. Was the Teapot to, Dome scandal, I mean, if we put it in modern terms, was it a bigger scandal than, the, it was bigger, obviously, than the Whitewater Clinton scandal. This was, this was uh, the biggest presidential scandal until uh, Watergate. And in my opinion, in terms of corruption, corrupt acting by the government, a degree of... Uh, criminality and bad behavior, it exceeds Watergate. Okay. I mean, this this is probably the top scandal in terms of its badness. Okay. Much worse than Grant scandals. Uh, Grant scandals were, were, were more shocking, but uh, in terms of the, the dollar amounts, in terms of the damage, they did far less. So and cool. Grant scandals more fit I mean, they were more excesses than out-and-out bad behavior the way this was. So Coolidge takes over, and he's, <coughs> he's unmarred by it. Yes. Okay, so what are the... So he gets through it. Does he comment on it at all? <coughs> well, here again, Silent Cal, you know, and this, the silence is when again, once again serving him very well. Why bring it up? I've dealt with it. These people are going to prison. Was there prosecution? Um, I'm not, I, I really, I probably should have checked that, but I really, I really can't say at this point. Uh, I'll, I'll make that an addendum when we come back in the next episode. Okay. So what are the, what, do you want to say anything about the 24 election? Is Coolidge going? Same thing, same same thing thing as before. The big, the big difference in 24 from any other election is that Franklin D. Roosevelt was nominated as the vice president on the Democratic ticket. Under Davis, right? Under Davis, a Wall Street, a Wall Street lawyer, and Franklin D. Roosevelt campaigned from coast to coast, from Maine to California, from Maine to Florida, 
from Southern California to Northern Washington State. I mean, he hit every little whipstitch county in the country. And he amassed uh, uh, a Rolodex. You know, they didn't have a Rolodex back then, but he amassed a collection of contacts, personal contacts, correspondence, because they used to write to each other back then. Uh, by the by, the time he was ready to run for office on his own, he Which knew right? right. He knew everybody everywhere. Okay. But the, his coalition hadn't quite formed yet. Frank it hadn't Obey, formed, yeah. but they knew Franklin Roosevelt. Okay. Um, and right. they liked him. Okay. Why doesn't Why isn't Coolidge brought down by the Teapot Dome scandal? He was vice president again. The vice president was a nobody. I mean, he, he probably never even. Talk to any of the people who were engaged in it. Okay. All right. Um, all right. So, what 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 are the um, as far as a as far as exec as an executive policy wise, and as far as setting the model for kind of a pro- prototypical or archetypical republic? Because really, in a way, Coolidge is more archetypical of a or prototypical. Let's call it. Of a no archetypical of a Republican president than Lincoln in a way because you don't have presidents of no there's no other Lincoln right there's nobody of the magnitude of Lincoln again in the Republican Party but there are a lot of presidents that model themselves off of Coolidge in a way I mean we talked about in the first episode how he's how Reagan considered him his favorite president what is it about Coolidge what are the that that set the tone for what a Republican president could be going forward and what is it about his policy or about the times in the 1920s that stand out that listeners need to be aware of. All right. So, first of all, I want to repeat and emphasize that point about the singularity of Lincoln. Lincoln stands head and shoulders above so many of the others, Democrat or Republican. just his wisdom, his moral courage, his vision of the country, I mean, his degree of humanity in dealing with all walks of life, I mean, his stature is enormous. So the Republican Party has more and more viewed itself as a party dedicated to increasing and enlarging the moral scope of the individual. Okay. All right. We have to be free to work out our destiny. In Coolidge's mind, it would have been, we have to be free to work out our salvation. Okay. That God will judge us, but we have to have the freedom to make moral decisions that God can judge. So we can't be held by accident of birth or social restraints, social restraints uh, financial restraints or anything like that. Cultural so taboos. Cultural taboos. So, so Coolidge, even though he had a very strong sense of rectitude and a very strong sense of, of God's role in our lives, he was also not one who was going to use the government to enforce, with, with the big exception of temperance, 
which was a constitutional amendment which was passed before he took office. Okay. All right. Uh, Coolidge would have been caught dead in a speakeasy the way he would have been caught dead in a Catholic church. Okay. I mean, both of them were anathemical to him. He probably knew people who went to both, but he himself wasn't going to go to either one. I mean, you got to remember, you know, when he became president, he was in this, you know, little podunk town in northern Vermont, you know, just a few miles from the Canadian border. He was not a mainstream kind of guy. But he did believe in freedom. He also believed in, in very, very strict limits for government, not only the limitations imposed by the Constitution and by statutory law, but even in kind of a, an attitude towards administration that if there's an ambiguity, you know, that I could take more power as the chief executive or I could take less power, I should take less power. Okay. He believed extremely in frugality, lived a very austere life, as you mentioned several times. Believed the and government in his personal life, believed the government should be extremely economical. There should be no frills, no big ex uh, extravagance about government operations or government offices or anything like that. He probably didn't have hail to the chief plate. He would have never had an Air Force One. He would did have never he, had a Marine One. Did he have a, a significant net worth at that time? He wasn't poor. But... You know, he would have been, he would have been, you know, like a high school principal, maybe, you know, something on that level. Superintendent of, of but a school But he lived district. at the level of what? Oh, he probably lived at the level of like uh, uh, a barber who's got a good barber shop. Okay. Diet and everything, right? What? Diet and everything. Yeah, very, you know, there's no big cookbook, you know, associated with I believe the, Coolidge family. Okay. Okay. So, um, now one of the things is he did travel a lot and he believed that he had, uh, native American ancestry and he spent a lot of time on a famous trip in 1923, going out to Indian reservations, wearing Indian war bonnets and, and uh, was photographed watching Indian dances and things like that. So he was, he was proud of that heritage. And does he look like Eisenhower? He's remembered for that. I don't think so. How does he look? Blue eyes, long straight nose, oval face, sandy hair, short, so uh, short. balding. But Eisenhower looks like that, except he's not short. Yeah, but Eisenhower has a more ruddy complexion, and Eisenhower has a more Eisenhower's face is more like a light bulb or an inverted pear. Um. So, Coolidge looks kind of like like a principal in a way. Yeah, he could, I mean, he could very well have been a, a small-town police chief, small-town mayor, principal of a school. Okay. Um, so Eisenhower sets out in a way, he sets out in a way the, um, does he look like a Dukakis, or Dukakis too tall? No, Dukakis is shorter, but Dukakis looks very Greek. I mean, Dukakis is very dark. I mean, he's a Caucasian, but he's, you know, I'm, I'm way on the dark side okay. of the Caucasian right. spectrum. Right. Um, <coughs> Do, do, all right. Does he look like Rand Paul? Uh, uh? No, Rand Paul's a pretty boy. Okay, right, that's so you have Coolidge kind of setting the philosophical tone, basically for what the Republican Party becomes in a way. The good, let's say, the positive elements in the Republican Party, at least. 
what 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 a, in his time his era was he integrated was he engaged in his era and what did he what were his policy decisions and his real time decisions that affected the the course of the country and what were the effects of it um like for the so future generation? a lot of people now deny that this is a christian country okay all right Pew Research, which does a, uh, a survey report on self-described religious affiliation, they've done it for over 50 years. It, they ask the same questions all the time, so longitudinally it's, it's very intact. Uh, so something like 78-79% of Americans view themselves as Christians. All the major documents in our history, have a strong Judeo-Christian base. Bible reading is still encouraged. I mean, and and if you did a a survey and said, you know, what's what's the latest book you read? Number one would be the Bible. I mean, I have no doubt that like two-thirds of people would say, you know, the last book I I picked up to read was the Bible. You know, and and, I mean, another third would say something else, and it's a huge number, but you know, what book influenced your life? The Bible. Who's the, the biggest influence in your life? Jesus Christ. Okay. You know, I mean, this is a Christian country. And Calvin stuck to the Christian ideals on which this country was founded. So back then, 100 years ago, in the early 1920s, this was it. I mean, we did not have this, this, this movement from wherever it is that... You know, this is a secular country. This is a humanistic country. I mean, it wasn't. It, I mean, it wasn't the Enlightenment people who came over here to found the United States. It was the Christian dissidents. Yeah. You know, so, you know, we always have to remember good that. Point. The Enlightenment is not a local product. That's a good point. So, uh, and then when he started talking about the Native Americans, I mean, how much more American can you get than claiming... Indian ancestry, you know, so he definitely was, but it was like what Nixon would call middle America, you know, the average American, you know, the guy in New Jersey who lives 30 miles away from Philadelphia, 40 miles away from New York. I mean, he obviously sees the big city influences on him, but he's really not. Yeah, he's really a local guy. So uh, that was the kind of guy who Coolidge would have been uh, speaking to. Policy-wise, are there any things of note? Uh, probably the ship treaty. Tell us about that. Uh, so I, I, I mentioned that earlier, the 5-3-2-1 ratio of naval, naval tonnage and naval building. That the United States... Okay, so that's a foreign been. policy. So, um, Basically limiting the size of European powers. Right. Um, as far as... How, as about, how about this? How about a move more towards... Does he back... Wall, does he back Wall Street? Does he back industrialism over and against agrarian farmers? Well, he didn't like farm subsidies. Why? Uh, my guess would be he thought that they were unfair. Uh, he probably thought that uh, they would reinforce the advantages that a well-capitalized farmer had already had. Because you know, if you're subsidizing somebody, you're going to be looking at getting a return on it. 
you're not going to be subsidizing some dirt farmer because he's he, he's just not going to have so the he the crop a product too. Well, not a startup farmer. He was probably thinking because I mean back then, what were he maybe sixty fifty five million, and probably twenty million still on the farm. So he was probably thinking the struggling farmer. You know, the guy the who's had man, the, the guy you're talking the guy who's had the farm and it maybe inherited it from his father or his grandfather. He's trying to not work it. Not a ton it. of acreage. Not a ton of acreage, you know, barely feeding crop. himself, you know. You know, maybe, you know, he's growing peaches or something as a cash crop, making a few dollars to put clothes on his kids when they go to school, you know, every which year. Was the, which was the backbone of the country. Which was the backbone of the country, you know, which is and a reason. And he thought the farm subsidy heard that. And he thought the farm subsidy would go to the big farmers who produced a lot more Was he in commodities. favor of industrialization? Again, you know, uh, New England was the the center of the U.S. textile industry. The wages and the working conditions were abysmal. Uh, mostly, it was women workers, women working. You know, weaving uh, is a, an extremely in, uh, labor-intensive occupation. And it took a long time to industrialize. It was the first thing that was industrialized. And even when it was industrialized, it required a lot of work because the machines constantly had to be reset. New thread had to be tied on to go into, into, the, into the whatever cloth they were weaving. Uh, it was just really dirty. They, things were either run by, by conveyor belts hooked up to water wheels or they were run by steam engines so it was dirty. Uh, there were things all around you that could bang okay. into you and hurt you. Right. And Coolidge never gave those the people who owned those mills any kind of problem. So, you know, if you want to say he supported industry because he didn't tax them, didn't force them to clean up their act, you could say that. But uh, was okay. Was cool, but okay. Was Coolidge holding the old, like old school, old guard over and against the? Because we think of the Roaring Twenties now as like. F. Scott Fitzgerald, the speakeasies, the dancing, the jazz music, kind of the new wave of like modern, I'm not going to call it the debauchery because it's not, but let's say modern loose living, urban loose living. Okay. Is, is Coolidge a, a, the last line before that uh, becomes the dominant, no. one of the mainstream? No, no, Coolidge, Coolidge was not the disapproving anti-modernizing, anti-humanism. I mean, Coolidge had an actual affirmative message. Okay. You know, there's a, there's a set of rules that God favors, okay. that is good for people, that is the way we should live, and he was an affirmative advocate of them. He wasn't, like, anti-dancing or anti-music. How would Coolidge have seen Quince, John Quincy Adams? They would have been kindred spirits, probably. Okay. Although, probably Coolidge is a lot more conservative okay. and far less intellectual. Okay. And who did Coolidge look up to as as his um his uh his father? Admir- who did he admire? Who did he his want to be father? Like? His father. Um, other than his father, what public figures? Maybe um, maybe Washington. Okay. 
you know, because of Washington's austerity, Washington's dedication to honesty, uh, Washington's willingness to, to leave office after two terms. So tell us about the decision. <coughs> let me let me just mention one thing before, because you, you kind of touched on it. So there was a third party candidate or a minor party candidate in the 1924 election, Robert LaFollette, who ran under the Progressive Party. Okay. The socialists had been destroyed. I mean, the government, government stamped them out. So they regrouped under the La, under the, the progressive banner with Robert LaFollette fighting Bob, the governor of Wisconsin. And they essentially brought back the progressive agenda back into politics. Was it a socialist or a progressive? Progressive. Both parties were running on a return to normalcy. Okay. But there was still that strong theme in American politics enough to, I think, 15%, 16. Six, 15%, 16%, you know, one out of seven, for that many people to, to go against the major party. And, and, and you know, two-party system is almost baked into the cake in a, an electoral system where one person wins because you've got to get the most votes. So if you can get half the people, you're there. So two-party system, it's, if it's not them, it's us. If it's not us, it's them. So that's why it all breaks down to a two-party system. So one out of seven were able to break out of that mold and vote for the progressive candidate. And, you know, I want to make the point they rejected both the Democrats and the Republicans. So it wasn't just a rejection of uh, Coolidge. Would that happen? Are it wasn't you, like now where the you, Democrats okay, are clearly more progressive. Say. You're going to bring it up in a in a it's a modern day where there's a progressive wing in the right. Democratic Party that represents probably the same group of people, right. 16 percent or something. Like that. Right. Okay. But may have a sway in the Democratic vote. Right. All right. What? Why did? Why does Coolidge in like, What are his right? What do you? How does the country feel about him? Could he have won in 28? Why does he back down? Well, he he, he essentially hit. The, the two-term limit. Okay, because he, he makes a comment. Oh, I've been in I've been in D.C. ten years. It's about all any man could take yeah. in D.C. You know, I uh, you've been there long enough. Why does he say ten years? I haven't been ten years. You know, close enough. Yeah. Uh, he he, you know, was president for part of one term. He was reelected the second term. You know, Washington's president about two-term limit was still very strong. His son had died. He was in deep mourning. He didn't what did like. His son die? I think he got killed in some kind of an accident. Uh, but he was in deep mourning. He didn't like meeting people anymore. You know, he didn't like meeting people all that much to start with. Sure. You know, so he just, you know, didn't like it at all anymore. And Hoover was very dynamic. I mean, Hoover really had a lot of appeal. He was coming up on the Republican ticket. Yes. Okay. And he was the uh, Secretary of Commerce in uh, Coolidge's uh, administration. I believe by Coolidge. Okay. I believe by Coolidge. And I believe Coolidge liked him. You know, one of, one of the important jobs of a chief executive is to tap the successor. Okay. And I really think, you know, who, uh, Coolidge saw Hoover as the apt successor. Another four years, God knows. And he said, you know, it's time for uh, Herbert Hoover. I like him. I can do what I can to help him. People like me, they'll listen to me now. So let's get the, out of here. This is the only string of three term, three, vic, three presidential victories in a row, Republican presidential victories in a row 
besides Reagan, Reagan, Bush in the 20th century, right? Well, no, because we had Grant, Grant... No, in the 20th century. Oh, in the 20th century, yes. Okay. And you said you were saying Grant, Grant? And uh, Hayes. In the 19th century. And then um, Garfield. So they had. They but had, once the progressivism of once the progressivism hit, it's only been two, two right. groups that have been able to do it: right. Reagan, Reagan, Bush, uh, Bush, and Harding, Coolidge, Hoover. Right. Which ended. Ended poorly. Somewhat auspicious. Inauspicious. Inauspicious. Um, all right. So, is there anything? Where does uh, Coolidge sit among the echelon of presidents? And what what are, what's something that you can take our our listeners can take with them? All right. As a lesson from Coolidge. So, Coolidge so um, I'm going to do it in a different order. So, first of all, I'd say he's a successful president. Uh, he brought us back from uh, a real disaster, uh, Teapot Dome. He didn't mess anything up. He was a little starry-eyed about the Naval Limitation Treaty, but it was a very common, uh, very common. Uh, illusion that a lot of them had. Uh, it didn't have any direct backlash or, or backfire from it that, that hurt us. Uh, he did establish a party based to uh, physical soundness, limited government, government economy. Uh, and, you know, he was kind of in disrepute until Reagan. And, I mean, Reagan helped so many people in the Republican Party. You know, he helped uh, posthumously helped Coolidge. Uh, but without, without Coolidge, there wouldn't have been a Reagan. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I would say that was, that was the big thing, that he, he established an ideological uh, basis for the Republican Party that could lead to Reagan. And, again, you know, he offered a very affirmative Christian message from the White House. At the time when it was really beginning to turn away from overtly Christian messages and becoming much more secular, it's much more, you know, even what in, in religious terms, what we would call Judeo-Christian, okay. you know. So, uh, but I would say, you know, setting up the Republican Party to receive Reagan was the big event, the big effect that he had on the future. Okay, okay. <clears throat> um. If that's it, then what? What do you want to do? What? What? Do you have any feelings for what would be our next uh, segment? McKinley. All right, McKinley. All right. Well, we'll do a McKinley, which you may not have heard much about, but for for now, that's all. Um, on Coolidge. So we're signing off, and this is Philip and Robert. Thanks for listening, as always. And we'll talk to you the next time.